Super Talk Mississippi media production. You're listening to Sports Talk Mississippi On Demand, presented by Pearl River Resort. Escape to Choctaw, Mississippi and enjoy world-class gaming, the Dancing Rabbit Golf Club, and Geyser Falls Water Park. Escape to Pearl River Resort. To the junction, in the grove, and to the top. This, this is Sports Talk Mississippi. On your radio and in the game. Right here on Super Talk Mississippi. What's up? Thursday afternoon, Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming online with you at supertalk.fm. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Scott Rippey, and Brian Haydad joining us for the first hour of the show this afternoon. He is still in Omaha, where he is currently uh, looking for the, uh, the location of the government office where he has to pay property taxes because of the amount of time that he has been in Omaha. The question is, how much longer will it be? Mississippi State plays an elimination game tonight against the Louisville Cardinals at TD Ameritrade. We'll get to that coming up in just a bit. But first, we remind you that Sports Talk is brought to you every single day by the good folks at Mississippi Land Bank. Online at mslandbank.com. Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. At Mississippi Land Bank, and we tell you this because it's important, Longevity is important. They've been financing land and refinancing land for over 100 years. It's what they do. And it's not just if you're buying a piece of property. You could be refinancing an existing loan. You could be getting a production loan if you are a farmer. Uh, Whether you're a farmer or not, maybe it's equipment for the piece of property that you've already got. Whatever it is you need to maintain the land, Mississippi Land Bank can help. They've got branch locations all across North Mississippi. You can find the contact information and the location of those branch offices at their website, mslandbank.com. So we go to the Farm Bureau phone line early this afternoon. Check out favorites.com and go with the home team. Brian Haydad from Omaha, Nebraska. What's up, my man? What's up, man? Ready for another day of baseball. Yeah, another day, and it uh, is a day that feels a little bit different because for the first time in a long time, Mississippi State is facing elimination. They did not have that scenario in a regional because they – swept through that they didn't have that in a super regional because they swept through it in two games and won their first game in Omaha so a little bit different level of pressure tonight for Mississippi State yeah no question about that and and that pressure is sort of intensified a bit because JT Ginn returns to the mound for the first time since that regional appearance which was cut short by by the return of that arm soreness so you know I I think I, I don't feel like I'm stepping out of a limb when I say you know you're not sure what you're going to get from Ginn are you going to get the guy who was so good in the beginning of the season, or are you going to get the guy who the second half of the season was sort of up and down and really had to grind it out? You get that first guy, you got a great chance, you know, to, to stay alive and and make it to Friday. If you don't get that guy, even if you win today, it really, really eliminates your chances of getting much further than that because you're going to have to go into the bullpen a lot earlier than you want. A lot riding on JP Ginn's start today. And, hey, Dad, it's really hard to get a feel or, or get an idea for what you're going to get from JT Ginn on the mound because more than anything, he just hasn't pitched much in a while. I think May 31st, uh, I think, the last outing uh, that, that he's had in a ball game, and it just, you know, you, you look around and you've had a lot of guys that have pitched and have pitched well, and he has not been in the mix despite being the guy that early in the season we talked about perhaps even more than Ethan Small at the beginning of the year. 
Yeah, we did. We, we we were all incredibly impressed, and he was incredibly impressive. He was he was really really good, right up until the time. Yeah, the LSU start was the first time he had any real adversity. That was the first time where somebody was able to get to him and chase him from a game a little early. Uh, and then after that, you know, he had the uh, the arm soreness at Tennessee, which he started the game but only went an inning. And and really from that point on, he only had the one really good start, and that was against Texas A and M in that rain shortened game. He was really really good in that game, but that was the last time we saw that guy that was so dominant early in the season. And then, like you said, you know, we haven't seen him pitch in a few weeks now. He didn't get any action at all in the Super Regional. I mean, it's it's it's, it's definitely a big question mark for Mississippi State. You know, what are you going to see out of this guy? Now, if he goes out there and gives you, you know, seven strong innings, he's going to put you in a position where you can go to tomorrow and maybe attack Vanderbilt with a lot of pitching depth that you have left and, 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 and you know, have a chance to extend this series one more day and maybe get to Ethan Small on Saturday. But if, if he's not good today, it, it's going to be – even if State wins the game, you can't like their, their chances going forward. If you go back toward the end of the season and kind of look at the rotation on which JT Ginn pitched, he, he threw on April 14th against Alabama. Well, the, the short outing against Tennessee was on April 7th, only lasted an inning in that game. Came back and threw a week later against Alabama, got the win in what we later determined was a designated start. It was a four-inning uh, game, uh, a runaway game for Mississippi State. He picked up the win in that game. He went five innings, six days later against Arkansas, took a loss in that game, uh, came back a week after that, so seven days later against Georgia, got the win in five innings. He pitched, uh, what, a week after that against Texas A&M, and that was the um, the, the seven-inning ball game. Six innings, took a loss, gave up three hits and only one run, really pitched well in that ball game against Ole Miss, got into some trouble early, but he was able to kind of wiggle off the hook in the first inning and ended up hanging around for four and two thirds. He gave up four hits, three runs, only two of them earned. That was on May 11th. He pitched six days later against South Carolina. A week after that against LSU, that was in the SEC tournament. Took a loss against LSU, lasted just two and a third. That didn't feel, though, like the, the outing against LSU in the SEC tournament did not feel like it was a function of arm soreness. Or or injury, it was a lack of effectiveness. Four inning or four hits, five runs, four of them earned, and just wasn't able to get deep into that ball game through a bunch of pitches in a short outing. Yeah, I mean, go back and watch that game, and, and you're absolutely right. Early in that game, you know, the first couple innings, he was really, really good. I think he retired the first six he faced. He looked really sharp, and then LSU got a couple guys on, and it just got away from him, which was sort of been the story of the season for Ken. That you know, he, he has struggled at times when guys get on base. Uh, against him, but that said, yeah, that LSU. I, I wouldn't attribute anything that happened that day to injury. It was just like you said, sure. just not a good start for him. LSU has gotten him twice this year. Uh, they, they were they were just able to, to to get to him for whatever reason. Uh, so it's been it's been a long time since we've seen JT again pitch effectively. You know, get in, deep into a game. Uh, you know, look like the, the first rounder and look show off the talent that we all know he has. Uh, if, if he's going to show it again, this obviously would be the day to do it. And for what it's worth, in the start against Southern University, the numbers were really good. He went three innings, gave up three hits, only allowed one run. It was an unearned run, had three strikeouts and did not walk a batter, but was pulled from that game because of arm soreness, I think is what it was termed. And I think you probably, you know, it's it's worth pointing out that Chris Lamonis has been extremely cautious, as a coach should be, when you're dealing with a potential arm injury. And... If we're just being real for a second, you're careful with, with all of your pitchers. 
But when you have a guy who turned down first-round money, was a legitimate first-round draft pick, and has an unbelievably bright future in front of him, you probably take a little bit extra caution because players, future potential players, parents uh, of potential players in the future will look at how you managed difficult situations when it comes to arm health. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a recruiting thing. That's if you do a great job of keeping your players safe and, and, you know, keeping those potential million dollar picks, you know, healthy, then that's going to, people are going to pay attention to what you're doing there and you know, they'll feel comfortable sending their kids to you or comfortable signing with you. But if you're a guy who's just like, okay, well, we need you out there and you're going to have to throw 100 plus pitches and that's just the way it's going to have to be, it's going to be difficult to get elite pitching prospects. And that's sort of one of those things that's sort of a, a short term problem for a long term fix. You know, you would like to just, you know, if you if, if the national championship was just, the, it is the, the biggest thing. You want to win one. But do you put Ginn and even Small at risk to do it? And then you, you risk the, ch- the chance of getting the kind of pitchers who can get you back there. So it's, it's, it's sort of an either-or situation. You have to be careful and hope that your players are going to do the best that they can and, and get you the national championship while keeping everybody healthy rather than risking their health and then in the future not being able to recruit those kind of players anymore. It's a tough situation for Crystal Lotus. I think he's done a pretty good job of managing it thus far. Sports Talk Mississippi with you, streaming online at supertalk.fm. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Haydad in Omaha, Brian Scott Rippey in the studio as well. We're glad to have you along this afternoon. You want to be part of the show, you can do so on the C Spire text line, 601-879-4395. 601-879-4395, C Spire, customer inspired. And C Spire uh, reminds you that uh, there are certain ways that uh, you can take advantage of really good opportunities that are available for you to save money and get great deals. We'll tell you about that coming up in just a little bit. Uh, Richard and Wiggins on the C Spire text line. Borky, I want to talk some NBA. We need some NBA draft talk today. Orky says his response was, we'll see if Cross lets us do it. We'll get to that a little bit later this <laughs> afternoon. NBA draft coming up, Zion Williamson. To me, the okay, this is not entirely fair to say it's the most fascinating thing, but something that has piqued my attention today is a lawsuit and a counter-lawsuit that uh, involves Zion Williamson. He has sued a company that he signed a contract with, Prime Sport out of Florida, to be his marketing representatives for termination of contract. And Gina Ford, the president of that company, has countersued Zion Williamson, who has not yet earned a penny for $100 million. He signed with CAA as his agent, and uh, Michael McCarthy at Sports Illustrated wrote a really long and detailed piece kind of outlying, or outlining rather the... Uh, the two sides of that lawsuit. I know that's probably not what's most interesting to you. We will get to a little bit of NBA draft discussion later this afternoon. More with Haydad from Omaha. We'll bring Rippy into the conversation when we come back as well. Sports Talk Mississippi with you in the Renaissance Bank studio. Renaissance Bank, understanding you. Is there another song, Borky, that you play for bump music that I allow to go as long as I allow this one to go? Well, no, especially because of this line right here. Everybody knows. Yeah. Yeah, K 
kind of is, isn't it? The world's kind of full of stupid people. And, you know, if we're being honest, there are probably times where we all fall into that category as well. But hopefully today's not one of those days. We're glad to have you along for the ride. Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming online at supertalk.fm. Rippy, what's up with you today? Not much. Ready to play some golf tomorrow. Yeah. Sports Talk Mississippi, along with the Gallo Show and the JT Show and Rebecca and the whole gang are going to be at uh, Old Waverly tomorrow in West Point. Old Waverly and Mossy Oak, two of the finest golf courses that you will find anywhere on the planet. I have been fortunate to play, you know, not like on a regular basis, but over the course of a decade or a decade and a half, some really, really nice golf courses. And I can tell you with absolute certainty that there is no place that I look forward to stepping on the course any more than Old Waverly in West Point. And uh, we're going to be there tomorrow. We're going to play some golf in the morning. Hey, Dad, we certainly hope things go well for you and Mississippi State tonight. But, I mean, theoretically, if they don't go well, we go off at 8 in the morning. I mean, could, could, you, could you get back in time to join us? I don't know that I could, even if we left right after everything was done tonight. But uh, I think we'll stay the night, and, and, and just I'll just be there. I'll talk to y'all next week. <laughs> yeah, one, one, one way or another, that probably uh, probably makes the uh, the most sense. Um, have you been around anybody today, or or seen Mississippi State fans, or talked to any Mississippi State fans, or maybe even from some online interactions, been able to gauge? What the uh, what the mood is kind of from Mississippi State fans going into this game is it one of excitement about an- another opportunity is this a game that people are really approaching with trepidation is it somewhere in between is it just nerves what is it I think it's, there's some some positivity today uh, because you know State has been so good this year outside of the SEC they've only lost once and that was to USM back in the second week of the season. Uh, so even though Louisville is a really, really good baseball team, there's something to that. There's something to the fact that State just hasn't lost these these teams outside of the SEC. Uh, and then, you know, Louisville has, has burned a little bit of their pitching, so this might be a day. You know, Nick Bennett's obviously a very good pitcher, their starter, but behind him they may not have as much. So if they can get Bennett out of there, they, they feel like they, maybe they can have some opportunities. I think the, the trepidation is looking ahead too far because then you look at Vanderbilt and – you know on Friday you're probably going to go with Brandon Smith and then try to piece it together with the bullpen. And, you know, you weren't able to beat Vanderbilt with Small in the SEC tournament. You weren't able to beat them with Plumlee yesterday. It becomes a question of, you know, how do you beat them with your, your fourth starter? Uh, and that's the question MSU fans are asking today. Well, and, and to me the thing that is – scary is not the right word. I mean, you, you do whatever you have to do to win today because right now with where Mississippi State is in the season, the only thing that matters is today. Tomorrow does not matter because if you don't win today, there is no tomorrow. And so you do whatever you've got to do. But if you wanted to lay out a perfect scenario for Mississippi State, it's a night where the offense comes to life. I mean, we, we talk so much about pitching and the matchup, JT Ginn versus Nick Bennett and who's available in the bullpen. But if you can put some pressure on Louisville with the offense, it gives you a little more wiggle room with what you can do with the pitching staff and kind of who you can bring into the game and maybe who you don't have to bring into the game. Yeah, and for me, the guy that, that doesn't need to pitch today, if you can possibly avoid it, is Cole Ward. Because that's the guy that tomorrow 
you could bring in and possibly get three or four innings of relief out of, the same way you got from him in the SEC tournament where he was really effective against LSU in that marathon 17-inning game. Uh, maybe you be almost similar to what State did during 20, the 2013 season when they were here in, in Omaha. That you had a guy like Trevor Fitz who got basically we get you a turn through the order, maybe maybe face 10, 12 batters, and then they would turn it over to guys like Chad Girardo and Ross Mitchell, and then let Holder close it out. Could you get to that tomorrow? Could Brandon Smith possibly give you a turn through the order? Maybe a couple other guys, and then you turn it over to Cole Gordon to get you maybe into the sixth, seventh, maybe even the eighth inning before you bring in a guy like Lee Bells or Colby White to close it out. So you're right. If they can get some runs on the board today and can avoid using Cole Gordon, that gives them a, I, that's a scenario where I could see State hanging around with Vanderbilt. If they can go from Smith to Gordon, I like that. If yeah. Gordon has to pitch today and, and, and they have to burn him today, it's going to be difficult. Yeah, you know, another thing that, that you might point to, and, and this is not a shot at anybody, it's just the reality because the level of competition is, is much different at this point with a, a really good Louisville team and a really good, maybe even a, well, I'd say a great Vanderbilt team waiting in the wings. You go back to the Hattiesburg Regional uh, from a couple of seasons ago. What was that, the 2017 season? 2017, yeah. Yeah, Mississippi State was facing elimination, and they had to beat Southern Miss in their home ballpark two times in a row. And you had some guys that that stepped up who had not necessarily been like the go-to guys from a pitching standpoint that went out and pitched the game of their life. And really, you know, we were talking about offense a second ago. But that's what you may have to have. I mean, if, if Mississippi State is going to make a run, not just to tomorrow, but let's say they're going to find themselves in a Saturday win to get to the, the the College World Series finals situation, you may have to have a couple of guys go out and pitch beyond what you think they are capable of based on what they've done previously. And sometimes in big moments, that happens. And one of the guys in that regional who pitched a game like you're talking about was Cole Gordon. That's so he, right. He can draw on that. He's he's been there before. And you're and right. If I remember correctly, hey Dad, he started a game early in the regional and got shelled, and then they brought yeah. him back either as a starter for a second time or a long bullpen outing. I, I don't remember which. They brought him I think back maybe as they a starter in the, uh, the 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 ultimate in the final game. That's and right, and pitched really really well. And Jacob Billingsley went a complete game the game before that. So could Ginn be Billingsley today? Could he go out there and really put the team on his back and give you, I mean, maybe not even a complete game, but get into the seventh or eighth inning and, and allow yourself a chance to not have to go through three, four, five pitchers today? If he can do that, then you're right. They have a chance. They have a puncher's chance tomorrow against Vanderbilt. The other thing to remember was, with Andy, yeah, Drake Fellows and, and Kumar Rocker had done a pretty good job shutting down the Mississippi State offense, but when they took Rocker out of the game uh, yesterday, between Rocker and going to Tyler Brown, they brought in Patrick Raby, and that's when State got two runs on the board and looked like they were yeah. going to get back into the baseball game. So there's some there's some reasons for optimism. Obviously, it's a really, really big hill to climb for Mississippi State, but to count them out, I think, would be foolish. Uh, I got a question on the C Spire text line from Mike. He says, how about a score on the U.S. women's national team game? They are still playing in the group stage. They are in Group F of the Women's World Cup. USA currently leading 2-0 over Sweden in the 69th minute of that game. So the United States playing really well. They got the um, the, the two-goal cushion with, oh, I don't know, about five minutes uh, about five minutes or so ago, uh, somewhere around the 60-minute mark of the uh, game. So they lead 2-0 with a win or a draw. They will advance as the uh, the top seed and would play 
Oh, who is it? It's not Chile. They've already played Spain, the Spain, uh, I think. Spain. Yeah, yeah, with a win or a draw, they will play Spain in uh in knockout stage games which are coming up next. Uh with a loss, they would still advance, but I'm not sure who the uh, the opponent would be. So, uh a win, they're able to hang on for the next 20 minutes or so. Spain uh would be the uh the next opponent. Uh, that's in the Women's World Cup that's going on. Tim and McGee asked about how Louisville's pitching is doing. Nick Bennett is the guy that's going to start. We'll tell you a little bit more about him later in the show uh, this afternoon. He has been good this year. He's part of the regular rotation for Louisville. If you want to take it a step farther than that, though, kind of the, the top, probably the top two guys out of the bullpen for Louisville are Michael Kirian, who did pitch yesterday and also Michael McAveen who is the guy that got suspended for arguing balls and strikes in the regional he missed the super regional Uh, it was a four-game suspension so he missed the last two games of the regional and then the next two games that they played which were their two super regional games and they certainly didn't need him in that Uh, so McAveen has not pitched a ton in the last couple of weeks uh, but he did throw two innings and uh, threw a good number of pitches I want to say 40 or so pitches in the game yesterday 41 Kyrian 40, 41 pitches yesterday? Yeah, got, got the box score right in front of me here. Yeah. There you go. Uh, and then who was the other guy that they used in relief? Yesterday they used uh, Adam Elliott, Michael McAvain, and Michael Kirian. Okay. So Elliott, and then McAvain, and then Kirian at the end. So those are kind of the top three guys out of the pen, especially with uh, with Kirian and McAvain at the, uh, the end of the ballgame. Uh, so Louisville is perhaps not in the exact spot that they would like to be from a pitching standpoint either. Uh, so we'll see how this one goes. It could turn into an offensive game tonight. And if it does, I'm not sure who you give the advantage to. That's two good offensive baseball teams. Probably a slight advantage to Mississippi State, uh, but it's not a big one. Sports Talk Mississippi with you. Glad to have you along on this Thursday afternoon. Mississippi State and Louisville in an elimination game tonight at the College World Series in Omaha. Back after this in the Renaissance Bank studio. Game tonight is at 7 o'clock. If you're looking for it on ESPN, you will be disappointed. You will find the NBA draft there. So ESPN 2 tonight for Mississippi State and Louisville. Louisville 50-17 and 17 on the year. Mississippi State. 52 and 14 and i guess before too terribly much longer hey dad folks will start making their way over toward the uh, toward the ballpark do we yeah, not still have warm-ups it? up and you're ready for baseball very very soon you're running a little bit late at this point aren't you i mean it's like three hours and 22 minutes until first pitch and you're not there yet or are you no, I'm not. I'm not there yet. I'm, I'm still in the hotel. Uh, you know, uh, it's 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 a pretty easy drive from the hotel. That's one thing I think I figured out about Omaha. It's a very drivable city. So yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get there in a little while. Hey, one thing I wanted to ask you about. We haven't really t- we've talked a lot of game specific stuff, but you've now been in Omaha for a week. I guess it was last Thursday when you you made your way out there. You've seen yeah. the Mississippi State games. I don't know if you've been to any games other than the ones Mississippi State was playing in but this was your first time to td ameritrade what have you thought big picture of kind of the college world series the setup the stadium the atmosphere all of it it's fantastic it's a great event uh, i think i've said before on the show that omaha does a really good job of embracing it, especially the downtown area uh omaha is a really nice city clean friendly people uh you know i know that 
there's always been a lot of debate about the SEC tournament. I know you and I are like keeping it Hoover kind of guys, but there are people who would like to move it. Uh, you don't ever get that with the College World Series, from what I can tell. Everybody's very happy to have it here in Omaha, and Omaha's very happy to have it here as well. So uh, a great event. I, I have been to you know a couple of games here and there, just, you know, beginning and ends of one as, as State was starting to play. I caught the end of the Little Auburn game yesterday and the beginning of Florida State Texas Tech yesterday. Um, I mean, it's, it's just a, it's a great facility, and the, the city itself is, is great as well. We've got something that we'll play for you a little bit later this afternoon. Mike Martin coached in his final game last night for Florida State. Kind of an emotional ending, and just a, I've never spent any time with or around Mike Martin, only kind of observed the way that he has run the Florida, Florida State program from afar. Uh, his final locker room speech last night, We uh, that is on Twitter, and if uh, if you've not heard it, we'll play it for you a little bit later this afternoon. It's just hard to find anybody that has anything negative to say about Mike Martin. Yeah, I mean, a true uh, great of the game. I mean, his numbers speak for himself, but on top of that, he seems to be well-respected throughout the sport. You know, he's put a lot of great players out there. His players love him. Uh, the Florida State fan base loves him. I mean, it's so difficult these days for a coach to, especially a coach who doesn't win national titles. I mean, Saban can coach it at Alabama for as long as he wants, as long as he wins national titles. But once you stop, people tend to, you know, wants you to go and move out the door. That didn't ever seem to be the case with Mike Martin. Even though he had great teams that, that came up a little short, you know, they, they never seemed to be a push to, to get somebody else there at Florida State. So uh, definitely, you know, going to be interesting to see how that, that transition goes for them because, you know, speaking as a Mississippi State person, you know, from Ron Polk, you know, the first transition worked really well from, from Polk to Pat McMahon. The second transition was a little different, you know, from Polk to Cohen. There was a lot of drama there at the end. It looks like this is going to be a pretty smooth transition for Florida State, but we'll see if the results can continue for them on the field. Yeah, and I think most people tend to think that Mike Martin Jr. is going to be named the uh, the next head coach at Florida State. I, I don't know that anybody has said that in any kind of an official capacity, but it seems like it's probably the easiest transition, and a guy is pretty well respected. But, I mean, I guess Florida State could potentially go another route if they wanted to do so. I, I, I don't know how upsetting that would be though, if, if that was the route they decided to go. Yeah, I mean, you, uh, that's sort of why I brought that up was, you know, you remember when, when Polk left and he wanted Tommy Raffo to be the head coach and Greg Byrne decided to go with John Cohen and it created this rift uh, between Polk and Mississippi State that seems to have only just been healed maybe this year with his return to campus for the dedication of the new stadium and all, all of that. So, you know, well, I guess we'll find out if Florida State is more, you know, interested in that relationship with Mike Martin, or do they feel like they need to go out and do a national search and then and bring in an outsider? We'll find out. You know, and that's an interesting debate because when you have a person who is your legend, and they decide it's time to move on, or maybe in conjunction with you, they decide it's time to move on. Sometimes there's this belief that 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 person should be able to name their successor or recommend who the next coach is. To me, I don't buy into that. Um, If I'm an athletics director, then I certainly want to be respectful of Mike Martin or Ron Polk or um, uh, Bill Snyder at at Kansas State. Uh, And and there's some other examples that are out there where – you know, you, you maybe have a son or a longtime assistant that you want to, to take over the reins. And out of respect, I'll certainly listen to you. But if I'm the AD, I've got to make the decision 
of what is best for the program. And while I appreciate whatever your contributions have been, whether they were for the last decade or the last four decades, you've done the job in the way that you saw fit. But this is not your program anymore when you step down. And now I, as the athletics director, have to try and guide the program into the future post your legacy. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and I, I guess that's kind of no, what Greg Byrne did. That, that, that's, that's exactly the path you have to take. You can't, you know, this is business at the end of the day. There's millions of dollars at stake. You can't just say that, well, you know, this, this isn't a family business either. This isn't, well, dad's retiring, so junior's taking over. This is, this is you know, that's not how this works. The athletic director is the one who has to have to say it's his athletic department. He is the one ultimately responsible for that. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, you can take it to account. And, look, if you think that Mike Martin Jr. is the best guy for that job, that's fine. But you, know, sure. you hire him. But if you don't and you feel like you've got to go elsewhere, you, got to, you have to do that. Yeah, I mean, maybe you look at it and you go, look, he's actually kind of handled the recruiting and has run the program on a day-to-day basis for the last several years. He knows the program intimately. He knows what's going to take to get it to the next step. We believe he's got the skill set for that. Great, hire him. But if you look at it and you go, well, you know, Frank Beamer's been here for a long time, and he really wants his son Shane Beamer to get a chance to be the head coach. But you go, yeah, but Shane Beamer's never been a coordinator. Or Bill Snyder wants his son to be the next head coach, and you go, yeah, we don't think that's the way to go moving forward, then you've got to make the change. And maybe it's a difficult decision, and maybe it frustrates some of your fans. So it will be interesting to see what happens with uh, with Florida State. I, I don't know. It just uh, Nepotism in sports, is it a real thing? Of course it's a real thing. Does who you know matter? Does what your last name is matter? Sure, like in everything else in life. But at some point, when you've got strong leaders in place, they've got to look at it with a more objective view than uh, maybe just you do because you want your son or your nephew or the guy that's worked for you for a long time to be the guy moving forward. Yeah, and and for Mississippi State, like I said, it was a very hard choice, and it, it led to a lot of, of you know of angst. And, and I know that for a fact that John Cohen has spent a long time trying to convince Ron Polk to come back and be part of this program. I remember the last game at Diddy Noble Field before the renovation and Polk did a video and I just it just didn't feel right that he wasn't there considering what that stadium is and, and what he, he was a part of the program that he is. Uh, so I, that's why I was glad to see him this year come back to campus and come back to the stadium and be a part of that. But it took 10 years. It took 10 years. So, you know, for Florida State, that's like you said, that's a situation they're going to have to deal with now. And and you know what, hey Dad, it's not always just that the relationship with the key players has to be repaired. Okay, Ron Polk got his feelings hurt, and that needed some time. And John Cohen needed to establish himself and run the program his way, and that needed some time to happen. But also, fans sometimes need some time uh, because there were Mississippi State fans who thought that Ron Polk 2.0 and him kind of demanding of what should happen going forward. Uh, there were there was more than one person that said, you know what, just take his name off the stadium. I don't think you can oh, yeah. find anybody that would be of uh, of that opinion anymore. At least not many. No, no, but it, you're you're absolutely right. That for a time there was like, well, if that's the way he's going to act and the way he's going to talk about this program, when he when he says, you know, I'm going to do what I can to basically undermine John Cohen, then yeah, there was a lot of thought that you know well, we may have to cut ties completely with him. And and you're right. I, I think now everybody's really glad that that did not occur. 
Hey, Dad, I know you've got work to do uh, headed to the ballpark here before too much longer. Give me a gut feeling on how this one goes tonight. What do you expect to see, and why do you expect to see it? I think State's going to win this game, and I think it goes back to what you were talking about. I think offensively they're going to be able to put some runs up on the board, and we'll see if they can save their pitching and give themselves a chance tomorrow against Vanderbilt, and that chance leads to getting to Ethan Small on Saturday. And if they can get to Small on Saturday, they're going to have a real chance to advance, but if not, it's going to be difficult. Yeah. Uh, it certainly feels like the odds are long at this point. Uh, last thing for you, uh, I know we've talked about attendance and crowds and Mississippi State crowds and all those things. H- has it felt like the numbers have kind of gone up and down, or has it been kind of steady with the same number of people uh, that are, are cheering for Mississippi State at each of the games? Not kind of steady for me anyway. I felt like it's, it's been about the same amount. Uh, we'll see what happens today and if that brings any fans. I, I Honestly, even if State wins today, I don't know that a lot more people will come because it would it would not be a great trip to have to turn around after one day if you lose to Vanderbilt on Friday. So we may if we're going to see a lot of MSU fans, we may have to wait until the national championship series if the Bulldogs are able to get there. All right, should be fun tonight. We'll certainly be watching. Thanks for joining us, man. Hi, right, Sports Talk Mississippi in the Renaissance Bank Studio. Brian Haydad. Headed off to TD Ameritrade. He's already running late. I mean, the game doesn't start for three hours, and he is feeling pinched for time. Our man Brian Haydad in Omaha. On the Farm Bureau phone line, check out favorites.com and go with the home team. This headline's a couple of days old, but it comes from the website Awful Announcing. Skip Bayless cites fake report from Twitter troll Sports Talk Barry on Chris Paul mocking James Harden for having man boobs. It's a little wordy. (laughs) Uh, If you dive a little deeper into the story, there have been plenty of cases of people and organizations who should really know better spreading misinformation tweeted by fake reporter accounts. But a particularly egregious one came from Fox's Skip Bayless on Undisputed on Wednesday. By the way, does anybody feel sorry that something didn't work out well for Skip Bayless? What does he make? Five and a half million a year? No, not at all. Five and a half million a year for some producer to feed him a parody account that pretended to be Woj. Because there's no way he actually found this guy himself. Some producer was like, holy cow, have you seen this? Like, you know, gave him some hot take food. And he formulated a take, but it was bad food. So now the results are not great. Makes Um, you wonder how often that happens without us knowing about it. Well, you had this different kind of thing but you i don't know where Stephen a's came from but you had that thursday night football game between the chargers and chiefs where Stephen a uh was talking about a matchup between one player that was on ir and another one that was i'm pretty sure out of football uh, yeah wasn't it um hunter, it was henry? hunter henry and yeah. someone on the chiefs that had like not played football in quite a while well that and didn't he also spend some time talking about uh how great a runner the uh he views dwayne haskins as dwayne more of a haskins. runner than a thrower yeah. Who had a hundred yards rushing total in his season at Ohio State? Didn't he run like a five one at the combine? Yeah, or something? something like then that. He he got he got called out for it, and then decided to re squat on the take and just said that was his opinion. Y'all were free to disagree. It's like just admit you didn't watch any right. college football. So here you go. The Sports Talk Barry Twitter account has been around for a while, making fun of sports media, and between and uh, should I not say that, Borky? Yeah, don't say the last yeah, name. Yeah, I wouldn't say that last name. You can spell it if you want to. Okay, I'll just uh, I'll skip on that. So this is a troll account, uh, and he the um, Twitter bio says, Marijuana is deadly. 
I have as many finals MVPs as Steph Curry. Tom Brady is an overrated system quarterback parody. So it's clearly a parody account, but Bayless didn't get that memo as in an undisputed debate about Chris Paul and James Harden's reported tensions in Houston. He credulously discussed reports of Paul mocking Harden's appearance. The only report that's out there is the one from Sports Talk Barry, one that came where he pulled the age-old move of changing his display name to Adrian Wojnarowski, and one that got a bunch of verified accounts to comment on it. And then on Wednesday, Skip Bayless, the reports are that this has been going on for two years. There was one report yesterday that this got so bad in practice going back two years ago that Chris Paul was making fun of James's man boobs in practice to the point where he broke down in tears and had to leave a couple of practices. That's when you're hitting bottom. <laughs> he didn't just take the, the, the tweet at face value. He decided to, to double down, triple down. And if Rippy, we, Rippy's word, squat on the take. And if and whatever then, producer handed it to him would have just looked at the next tweet in the thread, there was also an anecdote about how uh, one passed gas on the other one's pillow and gave him pink eye. Like, that was the follow-up tweet to this. And they still couldn't see through it. Yeah. Um, probably former producer. Yeah, former you would intern, think so. Whatever it was. Maybe. Maybe. United States wins in Women's World Cup action 2-0 over Sweden. They win the group stage uh, as part of Group F and will play uh, Spain in the knockout round to try and advance in the Women's World Cup. So things have slowed down a bit since the 13-0 opening round win over uh, whoever it was. Thailand. Sorry, no disrespect intended. Um, Well, beating them is apparently disrespectful, and they should never do that again. Yeah. So uh, no, th- Borky. It's beating them while dancing. Oh so yeah, well, having fun while winning. <laughs> ne- never do that again. The scores are what thirteen nil, three nil, two nil in the yes, uh, the group sir. stage. Is that right? Yep. I mean, I mean, I guess they only scored three and two in these last two games because they were trying to tone it down a little bit. Well, Alex Morgan got hurt today. That may have been something to do with it. That's no good. She not permanently, but she she was kind of beat up, so they just took her out for precaution. Yep. Uh, and that's after scoring five goals in the uh, opening game against Thailand. Uh, but United States still in uh, in good shape, advancing and trying to uh, win the World Cup. So good for them. Sports Talk Mississippi with you. Ceasefire text line is open, 601-879-4395. Again, 601-879-4395. Super Talk Mississippi continues to grow across the state today. We're celebrating year number 13 on the air in southwest Mississippi. Follow our journey on air and online as we continue to spread the great news about our state of Mississippi. And congratulations to Super Talk Southwest Mississippi, 13 years old today. More coming up with you as we continue in the Renaissance Bank studio. All right, here you go, C Spire text line. I was mentioning that you might want to get a tractor from Mississippi Land Bank that could help you financing it. This text came in, the only tractor I'm interested on this NBA draft day is Robert Tractor Taylor, uh, Trailer. Rest in peace. 
Saw a, a, a tweet from Gabe Bach, who is at texags.com, and he quote tweeted another, tr- another tweet from Ball is Life. Maybe the best trade in NBA history. In 1998, the Dallas Mavericks sent their sixth pick of the draft, Robert Tractor Trailer, to the Milwaukee Bucks for the ninth pick of the draft, Dirk Nowitzki. And the 19th pick, Pat Garrity. The Mavs then traded Garrity to the Suns for Steve Nash. It's hard to find a more successful draft night in NBA history than that, isn't it? I guess other than Cleveland getting LeBron, because he did, even though he left, he came back and did give them a championship. And that franchise, with with its dysfunction in the city of Cleveland having... I mean, being completely barren of championships, that's a pretty big deal what he did there. But that was a no-brainer, right? Because that was number one overall. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, that's a huge deal to get the number one pick and LeBron James falls in your lap. Yeah, that's not the answer to your question because that would have been the most fortunate lottery ever. Not draft. The the Spurs pick to get Kawhi Leonard, I believe, was via trade. Was it? I think. And that was after the 10th pick. Yeah, he was like... I believe Kawhi went 15th mm. back into the lottery, and obviously the Spurs probably were not in the lottery at that point. Yeah. Uh, so you had the uh, the Mavs giving up the sixth pick, or the, the the guy that they picked at number six in exchange for Dirk Nowitzki and Pat Garrity, and then they traded Garrity to the Suns for Steve Nash. How about that little piece of NBA history? All right, what about... Um, what about this this story out of Major League Baseball today? It's a little crazy on the surface. The question is, it just is it just conjecture? ESPN and others with the report: the Tampa Bay Rays received permission from Major League Baseball's executive council to explore a plan in which they would play early season home games in the Tampa Bay area and the remainder of the year in Montreal. The plan is still in its early stages, but the Rays have embraced the two-city solution as the most feasible to saving baseball in the Tampa Bay area after years of failed attempts to build a new stadium. The return of baseball to Montreal, who lost the Expos when they moved to Washington, D.C. and then became the Nationals before the 2005 season, has long been speculated and has significant support among power brokers in the city. Uh, including the guy who is the son of the original owner of the Expos, Stephen Bronfman. Under the plan, the Rays would play in new stadiums in both the Tampa Bay area and Montreal. See, that's the crazy part of this. This is where it kind of gets a little hard to wrap your mind around. Now, Rippy, you're shaking your head. You you think the idea of playing in two series, cities, period, is ludicrous. I think it's less ludicrous if Tampa Bay does nothing to help the franchise. If they continue to force them to play, I say force, if they continue to have to play their home games at Tropicana Field, which is a disaster of a baseball stadium where nobody goes to watch them play, I could see doing a deal where they play half the game somewhere else. I just don't think it's realistic. I think this is posturing to try to get a new stadium. 
and a semi-threat to leave. It's kind of like walking both sides of it. But I've been wrong more than once before, plenty of times. So if they actually do this and this ends up happening, I will definitely put my hand up. But I just don't see a professional sports franchise splitting into two cities, particularly not even close to like each other geographically. And then the like, most- Think of the logistics of that. It sounds great, but like... I mean, I just don't see how I don't, I don't see how that would logistically work. All right, it's happened before where you've had teams that have played home games in split cities, but usually they were fairly close in proximity, and there was a reason to do it. Tampa and Montreal are not close in proximity. Uh, of course, neither was Puerto Rico. The Expos played twenty-two home games, air quotes, in Puerto Rico in two thousand three. In the NBA, the Kansas City Kings split their home games between Kansas City and Omaha in the 1970s, but those cities are not too terribly far apart. You also had a time where the Packers played some of their games in County Stadium in Milwaukee, and then the other parts of the games were played at Lambeau and Green Bay. That was obviously before the investment into the the stadium at Green Bay and, you know, it becoming what it has become. And that was, you know, a couple of decades ago when that arrangement ended. All right, so what are the concerns on your end and what are the people that cover the Rays saying about this? I don't necessarily have any concerns. Like, Okay, what are the roadblocks or the obstacles? Sorry if you didn't like my phrasing. You know what I meant. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I just don't see how realistically that's possible. Like, you uproot the team halfway through the year and be like, the rest, like, you now live in Montreal or you now live in Tampa. Like, I just don't see, I don't see how that's realistic, particularly long-term. Like, how do you sign a free agent long-term and be like, hey, by the way, first 40 games you're living here, last 40 you're living there? Well, because it's not like, the plan, who, right? It's not the plan. They don't right, want to do not, this split thing. They either want a new stadium, maybe actually in Tampa Bay, not across the bay in St. Petersburg, or they want to move. They, they didn't really want to do this. And then the, the most recent update was the mayor of St. Petersburg said that he's not going to let them, I don't know how he has that kind of power. I guess it involves their lease with the stadium. He's not going to let them do that. Well, then they'll leave. But your town doesn't support the team anyway. They just had 5,000 people at a game. Lowest attendance ever in the history of the franchise and a horrible stadium that nobody shows up to play. So if you're really going to try to force their hand, well, they'll move. And that little economic impact is going to be gone. Which sucks because they're a well-run organization. Eight years left on the uh, lease for Tropicana Field. For more than a decade, the Rays have been seeking a deal, seeking a new stadium deal in either Tampa proper or in St. Pete where Tropicana Field is the the part of this story though that that like boggles my mind is where they say they're exploring the idea of two cities Tampa and Montreal but they would get a new stadium in both places there's no way I mean given the amount of trouble that they've had getting a stadium deal done in Tampa there's no way you're getting a stadium deal done for them to play 40 home games. Yeah, no And that's if you split it right down the middle. You might as well just move to Nashville because they'd build you a brand new beautiful ballpark and people would actually show up for it. What do you do with the new AAA stadium in Nashville? I agree with Borky. I'm just curious. Build build on top of it even. 
Well, I was going to say, wasn't there some discussion about that stadium being built in a way that it could be retrofitted to become a, a big league ballpark? That'd be smart. I did not know that. That was the case with the Redbird Stadium when they built it in Memphis. The, um, the, the way that stadium was built was in a way that would allow for, if Memphis ever got a Major League Baseball team, uh, they could retrofit it and add seats and create a big league ballpark. Would Major League Baseball work in Memphis? It would work in Nashville. Yeah. I think. Was that was that a, a really nice way of saying no, it wouldn't work in Memphis? Just feels like Nashville's better suited for something like that, doesn't it? Bigger. Growing like crazy. Saw a screenshot I, of Nashville. I think, it, what was it, yeah, 1999 but, versus now? In the growth in the downtown area, it's two completely different cities. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no question Nashville is one of the hottest markets in the entire country. I mean, you, you look at growth. I mean, you see Dallas Metroplex, Austin, Greenville, South Carolina, Nashville. Those are the places that are growing like absolute wildfire. But that doesn't necessarily negate the question that I asked a second ago. Could Major League Baseball work in Memphis? There are a lot of people that said the NBA would not work in Memphis. It has worked quite well. Now, the Grizzlies aren't very good right now, but they had... There was a decade run there. Team was for sale for about half of that time where the attendance was great and they were winning and the city just absolutely embraced the Grizzlies. Would they do that with baseball? Memphis seems closer to Braves country. Oh, no, 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 no. Memphis closer to Cardinals country. That's probably true, too. Not even close. A lot of North Mississippi there, man. Do what now? A lot of North Mississippi, too. Like Braves, there, Cardinals. Uh, there's not even a question that you got more Cardinals fans in Memphis and a uh, hundred mile radius than you do Braves fans. I mean that's that's prime Cardinals territory. I don't think it'd work in Memphis. I think it would work in Nashville. I agree that it would work in Nashville. Sports Talk Mississippi with you in the Renaissance Bank studio. We will go back to Omaha when we come back and check in with Kendall Rogers from D1 Baseball, D1Baseball.com on the Farm Bureau phone line. Back with you on the Farm Bureau phone line. Check out favorites.com and go with the home team. We go back to Omaha, Nebraska and check in with Kendall Rogers from D1 Baseball, D1Baseball.com. So you've probably been there, what, a week now? Are your, are your kids going to remember your name, Kendall, when you get back home? You know, FaceTime is uh, the be- the best invention ever, and I know you can attest to that as well. I absolutely can. It uh, it certainly makes the world a little bit smaller. How would you grade the College World Series so far? Prior to yesterday, every game that had been played had been decided by two or fewer runs. You had two three-run games yesterday Kind of when you you yeah. think about years gone by at the College World Series, how does this one stack up? I think it's been pretty good. I mean, I think you look at all the games, you really have not had just an absolute route. Uh, if you remember back last year, we had a couple of stinkers to where teams just got blown out. And, you know, this year, for the most part, which is kind of to be expected with the field that we have, uh, it's been a very competitive College World Series. So uh, I, I'd probably give it like a B-plus or an A. You know, the, the reason why I probably wouldn't give it like an A-plus or anything like that is, you know, there just have not been kind of that just incredible moment just yet. Uh, but we've got a lot of time here the next few days to, to get that to happen. 
Yeah, and I guess if you were going to go for that moment, it would be Mississippi State coming back from down four to one. Yeah. But even in that setting, there were there were. I mean, it was a great job by Mississippi State to come back. But there were some miscues yeah. there by Auburn. It wasn't like Mississippi State just goes double, 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 home run, double, boom, and it's yeah. over. <laughs> Auburn kind of helped them out a little bit. No, you're right. I think I think I would look at it a little differently had it happened just like that. You know, let's say Mangum went off the inning and there were no errors and he just came back and won. Uh, but the fact that, I mean, the game's over, if Edward Julian can throw a ball cleanly to first base, I think that just kind of makes it a little different. But, you know, this team – for Mississippi State, has had magic all year long, and you know, just kind of follows them around. Obviously, it gets Vandy. You know, they had that situation uh, yesterday, a uh, late night game, to where I'm, I'm trying to remember. I think they had one or two guys on, and it looked like they were going to kind of crack through a little bit. Uh, but you know, Vandy gets that double play late, and I think after that, I think everybody kind of thought, okay, yeah, that was their, their one moment where they could make an impact, and they were unable to get a run in, and you know, Vandy went on to win. But uh, you know, I think this team has some magic left, and uh, we'll see what they can do tonight. This matchup tonight, to me, is a, a fascinating one. I obviously saw yeah. Louisville uh, in the Super Regional where they were just dominant against East Carolina a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you know, We've all seen Mississippi State a bunch this year. I think these are two really good baseball teams. Uh, to me, though, there's some question with this pitching matchup and Nick Bennett, who hasn't thrown in a couple of weeks for, for Louisville yeah. on the mound, and then JT Ginn, who just hasn't had an extended outing in about a month, and the last time he threw period was May 31st. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. Nick Bennett's been really wishy-washy for them, and then when you look at JT Ken, obviously he's in a, a premier talent. I think he's a very poised young pitcher, but you know, you're know you you're asking a guy who's been banged up and who's a true freshman with your back against the wall at Omaha to go out there and give you a great start. I think this game kind of boils down to me, Richard, to the team that can get, let's say, I don't know, five or six innings out of their starting pitcher. And, uh, you know, for me, I think I probably feel a little bit better with JT again because, you know, the thing with Ginn is when he's been healthy, he's been really good. And so, whereas Nick Bennett has just been up and down like crazy and inconsistent. And so I think if JT Ginn's healthy, which is what Chris Lamonis and that staff believes, uh, I think he's more than capable of going out there and giving them a good outing. And I think when you look at his stuff in general, you know, typically he's obviously going to attack guys with a fastball, but he also, you know, keeps that uh, slider low in the zone for the most part. And if he can do that uh, in this ballpark, uh, he's going to have a lot of success. So I think the big key for JT is he's got to get off to a good start. I know, I know that's kind of like, well, duh. But, you know, in, in this ballpark, in this setting, if you can get in a, get off to a good start, get into a groove, you're, you're no longer kind of worried about, you know, your arm or shoulder tightening up or something like that then I think you can kind of settle in and put together a good start. He's going to have to be good for them tonight. Kendall, let's play the long game with the winner of this game just for a second. Um, whether it's Mississippi State or um, Louisville, they've got to beat Vanderbilt twice. And so given the monumental task that that will be for either of those two teams, how important is it for one or the other tonight to have kind of a big offensive night in order to yeah. be able to kind of protect the rest of the arms, and you know whether it's, uh, you know whether JT Ginn or, or Nick Bennett can give you five or six innings, but maybe just use two guys, period, so that you've got a fighter's chance or a puncher's chance against Vanderbilt when you get to that point. No, you're right, and and that's why it's key to not only get a big offensive night, but also get a good start. Because let's say you can get a big offensive night, then all of a sudden. You know, and, and granted, where this starts to play in a little bit is with JT Ginn's injury. You just kind of wonder if Chris Lamont kind of has him on some sort of pitch count. We'll see tonight. But, you know, yeah, if the offense can get off to a nice start and give him some cushion, let's say he can go 
seven innings or something like that for them. I think it really, really helps. And so the big thing with Mississippi State, you almost kind of wonder a little bit, but, you know, because you're, you're right, you have to start thinking about the long game here. You almost wonder a little bit if State's going to try to uh, go kind of go John Cohen style from a few years ago to where they just kind of piece things together the last couple of games against Vanderbilt. You know, on the, you know the likely start Ethan Small in the first game. Let's say they win with Ethan Small, then they come back with Peyton Plumlee. You kind of wonder, like, hey, we don't want to waste Plumlee for the championship series, so hey, let's let's throw in three or four innings and then get some other guys out of the bullpen in there for two at a time. You know, get one through, one time to the order. And, and potentially start playing for the championship series as well. There's a problem you run into with both of these teams is, boy, they, they just don't match up great with Vandy when you look ahead. Because if you look at State, let's focus on those guys. If you look at State, you're throwing Ethan Small, and then you're throwing Peyton Plumley, and you're coming back. Let's say you win both. You're coming back into the championship series without either of those guys. Likely maybe Ethan Small in the finale, but you know with Ethan Small where he got drafted, you kind of wonder – if Chris Lamonis plays it very safe with him. So, boy, right now it's just a very big disadvantage for either of these teams if they come out of the loser's bracket. But never say never. I mean, Coastal Carolina, what was it, a couple years ago, came out of the loser's bracket, beat TCU twice, and then won the national championship despite all of us thinking they were at a huge uh, disadvantage. We all know Mississippi State has more talent and depth than those guys. And I think Chris Lamonis' quote with regard to throwing Ethan Small on Friday was he was uncomfortable with it, uh, but likely would not. He said we would not feel comfortable with that. I don't know if that's a definitive, absolutely we will not throw him or not, but that feels like it's going to take Mississippi State getting to Saturday against Vanderbilt for us to see Ethan Small again. Yeah, and that would make sense. I mean, he's a guy that, you know, he hasn't had to bounce back quick this year, really, and so... Uh, I guess in a way that doesn't surprise me, and it's actually pretty impressive. That shows that that staff has bigger things in mind than just uh, winning a ball game for Ethan Small. And so hey, that, that's a good thing on one hand, but on the other, you know, again, we talked about having to piece things together from a bullpen standpoint. It sounds like if they win tonight, tomorrow is going to be kind of Johnny Hole staff. And honestly, that's not really that bad of an approach in this setting to kind of get, let's say, a reliever one time to the order. I wouldn't go out there and try to get a reliever to give me three innings and getting two two times to the order against that lineup. But uh, if they have an opportunity, I think if you can get guys to give you one time through, I think you're in pretty good shape. Hey, is Michigan going to be playing for a national championship? Boy, it certainly looks like it, doesn't it? I mean, you know, Michigan, we talked about the pitching situation with State and uh, Louisville, but, you know, how about Michigan? They're going to start Carl Kaufman uh, tomorrow night, going for the jugular uh, against Texas Tech. And let's say they lose that. You know, kind of, you talk about bad situations. Let's say they lose that and then throw Tommy Henry, but win then all of a sudden they're playing for the national championship without the number one and number two starters. And if there's one thing that Michigan doesn't have versus some of these other teams, which they haven't, they've been able to mask it so far, uh, it's premium bullpen depth. And so, uh, you know, it's, I think it's a little risky going with Kaufman, but I think Backett just wants to get the knockout punch in and then worry about the championship later. And, again, if you can throw Kaufman tomorrow, uh, then you can have the ability to maybe bring him back on Wednesday. And, and obviously not a – you know, complete game kind of situation, but you can, you know, he can maybe give you a four or five innings. So uh, that's, and, that's and a Kendall, fascinating decision by Eric Backage. Isn't the third starter for Michigan, isn't it Criswell, but they've kind of brought him into a bullpen role. They did that against UCLA and have done that also here in Omaha. Yeah, you, they, they have. And the reason why is, you know, Willie Weiss is a freshman, but Kaiser uh, has been a little up and down for them at times, though he did come out of the bullpen and throw really well against UCLA. Uh, you know, and beyond that, it gets a little thin. So, 
I, I just think when you're Eric Backage, I think he he figures, hey, we're if we're going to go out, uh, we're going to go out with our throwing our best arms. And I think when you look at Carl, you know, Kaufman and Henry, uh, then Creswell, those are their three best arms. And so, yeah. hey, until until we have to throw another bullet out there, uh, we're not going to do it. Forgive me if I'm overstating this, and I don't know, it may anger some of our listeners. That's not my intention. I think everybody would look at it this way. This is Vanderbilt's tournament to win, though, right? Correct. I mean, they're sitting in wonderful shape. I mean, let's say they win tomorrow, uh, you know, with Mason Hickman on the mound. I mean, goodness. I mean, that lineup with their usual weekend uh, rotation ready for the championship series, yeah, they're, they're sitting in pretty good shape, I would say. It's uh, it's an impressive uh, job that Tim Corbin has done once again, and feels like a Vanderbilt program that's going to uh, be there year after year. Yeah. What, what's your gut on how this one goes tonight with Mississippi State and Louisville? We've got about thirty seconds left. Yeah, I think I think I feel good about State. Uh, I just think when you look at that lineup, I think that that this lineup that they're going to have to get a knockout punch to knock this team out of the postseason. And I just don't think Louisville is the kind of team that's going to do that. So I feel pretty good about this lineup. Uh, taking care of business, and uh, I think they'll play Vanderbilt for the bracket championship. And, and by the way, real quick, uh, I just saw Gary Henderson uh, is a new associate head coach at Utah. Speaking of some good uh, Mississippi State news. Very good. Good for him. Certainly a, uh, a good man who did a lot of good things in Starkville over the last couple of years. Kendall, always appreciate your time. Enjoy the game tonight. Thanks, Richard. Have a good one, buddy. That is Kendall Rogers from D1 Baseball and D1Baseball.com. Join Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming online with you. Supertalk.fm, Richard Cross, Michael Borky, and Brian Scott Rippey on this Thursday afternoon. Glad to have you along. About two hours from right now, they will be playing baseball in Omaha, Nebraska, Mississippi State, and Louisville in an elimination game. The winner has got to beat Vanderbilt two times in a row to get to the College World Series final. But you can't worry about that until you take care of business tonight. Just a little bit after 7 o'clock, first pitch in the ball game between the Bulldogs and the Cardinals. We are glad to have you along on this Thursday afternoon. Sports Talk is brought to you every day by Mississippi Land Bank. Online, mslandbank.com. Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. If you've got land financing needs of any kind, Mississippi Land Bank can help. They've been financing land and all that goes along with it for over 100 years. So if you are a farmer and you've got equipment needs, need to buy a piece of property, need to get a production loan, or maybe you want to refinance an existing loan, well, Mississippi Land Bank can help. Not a farmer, but you're thinking about building a dream home out in the country just a little bit, or maybe it's a recreational piece of property. Whatever your needs, Mississippi Land Bank is there to help you in North Mississippi. Again, mslandbank.com, Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. It's time right now for the College Football Fix. College Football Fix is driven by Ford and your local Mississippi Ford dealers. Log on to buyfordnow.com and find out why the best-selling trucks are built Ford Tough. You can test drive an F-150 or maybe the Ford Super Duty or the Explorer or the Expedition, whatever it is that you like at your local Mississippi Ford dealer. Great deals going on right now. Plus, if you are a military member or first responder, there is extra special savings for you through the 4th of July. All right, Borky, we've gotten uh, some programming news from ACC Network. ACC Network is debuting in August. 
and you think the SEC Network needs to uh, take a uh, a page out of ACC Network's programming manual? Is that true? Pretty much, yeah, because the ACC Network is doing a Hard Knocks feature on Clemson, and they're styling it after Hard Knocks on HBO, which, if you've never watched it, I encourage you to do so. It is an actual, real, like non-fluffed-up inside look of an NFL training camp. It's awesome. It's really well done. And even though with a college team, the access is probably a lot more limited and the language and stuff is probably toned down some, I would love to see a more in-depth, like, inside access instead of a 30-minute, like, produced-up program that you get sometimes on the SEC Network. But right. mic up all the coaches and get cameras in there and let them know and make sure that no, like, secret play information, because they're all paranoid, will get out. But follow them around. I mean, how fascinating would it be to see the dynamic and practice and in meetings of Matt Luke and Rich Rodriguez and Mike McIntyre? Wouldn't that be awesome to see behind the scenes of? Yeah, but Borky, I might argue that that's a bad example. Because that's kind of what Ole Miss has done with the season. Yeah, but it's it's produced up and, and, and it's very good. Don't get me wrong. It's very, very good. But they're not going to show you any kind of anything that is conflicting or not positive. I would not think that you would see that on ACC Network either. I know. So, but I would so, like to so, is what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. No, I get that. And, and you've seen it happen on several different levels. Uh, you've, you've seen Showtime do the documentary. They followed Florida State around one year. They followed Notre Dame around. I just don't think that when you're talking about a college program, you are going to get the true inside access that you get with the NFL. I mean, that that's kind of what HBO's deal has been with. They wanted to show conflict. They wanted to show what training camp was really like. And in signing off, the NFL has allowed them to do that. And then if you take it a step farther, you know that most teams don't really like hard knocks being there for their training camp. Yeah, but it's so good. I like I found myself rooting for the Browns because of hard knocks. Even though they may not like it. I mean, it's the same thing with Last Chance U, right? I mean, it... There were people around the MACJC that didn't exactly like it, you know? Oh, that's absolutely true. But I find myself rooting for for that program to win more because I got to see who they really were. I mean, you got to, even though he didn't make the team, Devin Kajust, if he would have ever like made a catch in an NFL game, I'd have been pumped because I got to follow him for five hours leading up into the season. Real inside stuff, conversations with him and his dad in the meetings where they were talking about him, uh, position groups, all that stuff. You find yourself like gravitating towards these teams. The, the the PR and positive anything you would get around these programs to giving real inside access, I think would be worth the negativity of having cameras around all the time. The announcement from ESC, uh, ESPN said uh, it's going to be called All In, the Clemson football family. It's starting on August 25th. And by the way, Clemson is playing the first football game on ACC Network um, against Georgia Tech. At least the, the ACC re- Network knows where uh, where the programming needs to be, and it's with their crown jewel on the football field. Uh, there's no question. I mean, you think about the first football game that they aired on the SEC Network 
when it launched, it was Texas A&M who was new to the league uh, against South Carolina. And it was a really big deal. The release said this, as the new home for ACC Sports, ACC Network is the right place to show Clemson fans just how hard we are working and give them a front row seat to what we believe makes our program unique. That was from Dabo Sweeney. I'm excited to share some of the special moments from this offseason with Tiger Nation as we all get ready for another great year of Clemson football. show will take place each night from August 25th through the 28th leading up to the season opener and serve as a hard knocks style look at the program as they prepare for their season opener against Georgia Tech on, as you guessed, ACC Network, like we're talking about. Uh, looks at the practices leading up to the game, various features on players from the summer, player and coach interviews, plus behind-the-scenes looks at team dinners and more. It does say if that all uh, the, the story from College Football Talk says if that all sounds like a Clemson infomercial, that's because it is, and a good reason why AC, the ACC is joining the Conference Network party. Such shows are not uncommon, as you can find similar things from Pac-12 networks and Big Ten Network to even online from various school self-productions. Um, I don't think, Borky, and, and I know I'm kind of repeating myself, that you're going to get at all what it is that you want to see. Yeah. You, you want to see the conflict. You're I want not to see get Nick Saban here. yelling at, at, at a coach in a meeting. That's what I want. I want to see That's exactly how those butt chewings that he used to give Lane Kiffin, I want to see that because that would probably make me like Nick Saban more. If I got, and, and especially because... All right, you want a little inside baseball? Let's hear it. Okay, so you know when you watch a basketball game on SEC Network and it is a wired game, you know, one of those where they've got the coach wired up and mic'd up, and you get some really interesting stuff sometimes. Sometimes you just get fluff. But when that happens, when, when you get those games, there is someone from the school who is on the headset with the truck and has to approve what actually goes out over the air. Man, college sport, it, it, is, it is not that serious. It's really not. And I understand why they do it. But there, there's so much paranoia with how these programs are protected. It doesn't. Everybody have to wants be that to protect way. themselves, no question. I don't get it, though. I just, it, what do you mean you don't get it? I don't get the, why you have to do it. I understand why they do. I just don't understand why, like some foul language would, would that really offend people? That, that well, a I coach mean, is is cussing at a 20 year old kid. That happens. I mean. Would that really actually negatively affect you? I guess it does. I just I can't think coaches that are does. scared to death that something they say could affect something in recruiting or could negatively impact their program. I mean, the the most good grief, the 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 most raw and the most unscripted stuff you got from anybody on the wired up segments came when Andy Kennedy was the head coach at Ole Miss because he didn't really care. Not that, I mean, obviously you didn't want to coach F-bombing a player in the huddle, and that wasn't going to make it to television regardless because ESPN couldn't allow that to happen. But just as far as just complete raw what's happening, you're not going to get that. But that doesn't mean that this show can't be good and that these shows can't be good. Yeah, the the season's season's very, very good. It's really, really good. And you get a true inside look. And my guess is that's 
kind of what they will model this Clemson all in inside. What are they calling it again? All in the Clemson football family. Yeah, because they they take poker chips, and when they get off the bus, because they have to take a bus around the stadium to run down the hill, they all put little chips in a bucket before they do that. Do they? They do. Well, that's kind of cool. Sports Talk Mississippi with you in the Renaissance Bank studio. More coming up. That's your college football fix driven by Ford and your local Mississippi Ford dealers. All right, we've had several texts throughout the course of the show today ask for a little bit of conversation about the NBA draft. You know this is not an NBA show. We do talk about it some when there's relevant stuff, and the night of the draft is pretty relevant. We've already got trade news, Borky, and it is once again involving your New Orleans Pelicans, and I think you like what you're hearing, right? Oh, oh yeah, it's really significant. So they had the number four pick that they got from L.A. in the Anthony Davis trade, and they turned that into the number eight, number 17, and number 35 pick while also getting rid of Solomon Hill, which is a guy that barely came off the bench, but the previous GM gave him a really stupid contract at $12 million a year. So they got three picks now for the price of one and got rid of a a contract that was really holding them down and potentially signing somebody in free agency or whatever. So Anthony Davis has now turned into Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, Josh Hart, the number eight pick, 17 pick, 35 pick tonight, either a top eight pick in 2021 or a first round pick in 2022 swaps in 23, 24, and 25 with the Lakers. Hmm. I mean, that is a haul for a guy that has one year left on his deal. You know, with... Okay, so they trade four and they get eight, 17, and what's the third one? 35. Okay, so you look at that for a second and you go... Because you've heard the some some pundits and maybe some people who are not that closely paying attention to how the NBA draft works, say this is a three-player draft or this is a four-player draft. Zion Williamson, Ja Morant, R.J. Barrett. Some people talked about Jordan Culver from Texas Tech. Uh, Some have talked about Cam Reddish to a certain degree. There's been some talk about the big guy from Texas. It's really Darius Garland's kind of the mystery guy in this whole deal, too. Darius Garland from Vanderbilt. So so those are kind of the names that you're going to hear in the top ten picks. But if you look at the history of the NBA draft, it's the guys who aren't talked about on draft night that go between 10 and 30. I was going to say, like particularly like superstar range, like 6 through 20, there's always seems to be one guy that's an absolute steal. So, so there's somebody that is not named Zion Williamson or John ja Morant or Darius Garland or Jordan Culver who likely is going to emerge as a star in the NBA. And to me, that is why this is kind of a big deal for New Orleans. Okay, you get a pick at eight. You get a pick at 17. You get one just outside the first round at number 35 overall. And that's after you get, you get Zion. In addition, yeah, that that yeah, in addition to the number one pick overall, and there's just a lot that David Griffin's got going for him right now because not only can he go draft players, he can also he's got trade pieces. Griffin's like pulling off and reenacting his own like draft day movie. In some ways, he really is, isn't like, he? Very outside the box moves, 
in a historically not historically but in most recently run like badly run organization and now they're kind of i mean the ringer wrote a piece even more the second wave of trades that like the lakers are the nba's present and the pelicans are the future and particularly the latter half is 100 percent true like you don't know what lonzo ball is yet you got all these talented young pieces surrounded by what is seen as kind of the next generational talent which is wild to say and Makes Borky want to take his pants off. <laughs> They've been Are you wearing your socks again tonight? I am, even though I don't need luck because Zion is going number one. Um, so, so that deal is done. But yeah, I've got them on today, actually. All right, so storylines to watch going into the draft tonight. Obviously, New Orleans is taking Zion Williamson number one overall. Memphis is taking John Morant number two overall. That was made, not that there was really any question about that, but it was made even more abundantly clear uh, when they traded Mike Conley a couple of days ago to Utah. The question of what does New Orleans do with the number four pick is no longer a question because they have dealt the number four pick and gotten 8, 17, and 35 in return. What are the Knicks going to do at number three? I'd be terrified if I was a Knicks fan because they've worked out a couple of point guards in the last couple of days, Kobe White and Darius Garland. It just seems like that would be a big-time mistake taking one of those two at three, wouldn't it, when you've got... I mean, you've got a ton of pieces you have to fill, and it seems like Barrett's a no-brainer in that spot. Knicks fans are going to be furious if they don't take R.J. Barrett, aren't they? I just don't feel it's the time for Knicks people to do like the bold thing. Just do the thing that makes sense and keep it between the lines. Although, I will say, three of the smartest people that I follow from the NBA are infatuated with Garland. And, like, you just kind of wonder what would have happened. Because you look at those whatever seven, eight, nine games he played, he was sensational. And for a while, when he was 8th, ninth, 10th grader, he was the number one guard in this class coming out of high school. I don't know what he ended up yet. I can't remember. But, like, there was a two, three-year stretch when he was younger. Like, that, like he was the number one guy. And so you do kind of wonder what he is. But to Borky's point, if you're the Knicks, and, like, it's kind of aligning for you with Durant, even though it's a year, just take the – Take the guy that makes sense. Like, don't take a chance. Look, obviously Bryce Drew did not maintain his job at Vanderbilt. They got a new AD. It was easy enough to get rid of him because Vanderbilt had been a disaster. I don't think Bryce Drew, though, is an idiot when it comes to being a basketball coach. And I talked with him prior to Vanderbilt's game against Florida. And I said, help help me understand the Darius Garland thing. Obviously, that was a huge blow to this team and to this program. And he didn't blow it off. I mean, he, he could have easily kind of blown it off. Like, that was a dumb question at that point in the season. I said, I mean, I, I saw him play on TV a couple of times, but what did he really mean to this team? And they said, well, or Bryce Drew told me, he said, first of all, he was a legit scorer. He said he was the rare guy, though, and this gets thrown around too much. He had the ability to make everybody around him better. And so... Um, Chateau, the guy for Vanderbilt. What was his first name? Simi Sola. Yeah, Simi Sola Chateau ended up having a pretty decent year. Uh, Joe Toy had an okay year for Vanderbilt. Those guys' play probably gets elevated more with Darius Garland on the floor. At least that's what the people from Vanderbilt said. And I didn't, I mean, I talked to Bryce Drew about it. But I also talked to a couple of their radio guys about it, to their media relations guy, and they, they just 
they did they couldn't say enough good things about Darius Garland and what that team could have been. And Vanderbilt went 0 and 18 in the league, didn't they? Didn't they go winless in the league? They did not win a yeah, game. Yeah, they did. Yeah. So they went 0 and 18 in the league and got bounced in the first round of the SEC tournament. They played hard all the way through. They just weren't very good. They believed that that was potentially an NCAA tournament team without Darius Garland getting hurt. And and you might hear that at this point and go, okay, sure, one guy is going to take a team from 0 and 18 to 10 and 8 in the league. And I think they believe, you know, given the way some of the scores of their games went, you know, you lose a game by two, you lose a game by five, you lose a game by six, you lose a game by three, you lose a game by seven. And a bunch of those were at home, and then they played some teams tough on the road. I think they realistically were able to look at it and go, look, with a healthy Darius Darius Garland, we would have won those games. And probably would have been in some other games that maybe didn't even look as close on paper. There, there's no there way a, to know what it, how it would have turned out. There was a point in like late January, early February when they just probably got beat down mentally to where they turned it in because like that team that night when they played Ole Miss in the SEC opener, like that wasn't. An, if you'd have told me that team was going winless in the conference at the time, I probably would have put everything I had on it. Like I would have thought you were insane. They weren't that level of a team at that time, and like it, it just had. I mean, what they start zero and four, they lost Georgia a couple of close ones, like you said. Like there yeah. had to have been a point where they just shut it off. Sure. What about Mississippi guys tonight? The uh, the two names to watch uh, as probably second round guys, Terrence Davis and Quindary Weatherspoon. What do you anticipate with those two? Sounds like Terrence Davis will get drafted early, mid second round. I have no idea about Weatherspoon. So thirty to forty, forty five. Okay. Yeah, somewhere around there. Uh, I mean, he has tested extremely well and shot up boards because of it. Which you always knew he would. Like the freak athleticism was there. He's a good shooter. Like it, it, it makes sense why teams would be kind of tantalized by the the athleticism and see if they can kind of don't don't you find that. Don't you pick Terrence Davis up as a guy who probably plays in the G League for a year or two, and you hope at some point you can bring him in to give you a, a spark defensively, and then he can make some shots. Depending on what team he goes to, he strikes me as a guy that's going to like destroy it on a 10-day in like January when a team's got a bunch of injuries. And, and then, then maybe that turns and then into a two-way and maybe I mean it's a long path. I'm not saying that's likely, but like like if he if I saw Terrence Davis like 30 points in a January game he gets caught up on a 10-day, like that kind of makes sense. So the NBA draft tonight Uh, The big news right now is that Atlanta has given up the number. Atlanta has gotten the number four pick from the Pelicans in exchange for 8, 17, and 35. And it'll be interesting to see what Atlanta does with that pick as they get set to try and pick somebody to kind of pair up with Trey Young to be the future of the Hawks franchise. Sports Talk Mississippi, there's your NBA draft talk in the Renaissance Bank studio. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.